0: Well, we have been in a series called Guardrails for the last two and a half years. No, it just feels like that, right? Some of you are like, how long is this series gonna go? It's gonna go a little bit longer. And this whole idea—we love this idea of taking—you know—if we put the road up here for a second, uh, we love this idea of taking yellow lines and white lines and rumble strips and guardrails and using these as analogies. That you think about it, you have some engineers out there that have pre-planned and put a lot of time and energy and strategy into putting these, engineering these things into place because they want to keep us and our vehicles from straying into dangerous and and out of limit areas, right? These areas that could cause death or cause damage. And so they pre-plan and they pre-engineer these places. And, and so what, are, what I would submit to you and what we've been saying throughout the series is what would it look like for us to take some time to step back, to zoom out, and ask what are the pre-planned standards that I should have in my life? And I'm telling you, so many of the regrets that we have in life, we, we wouldn't have those regrets if we had taken the time to do this and so we did this a couple weeks ago but I just wanted because maybe maybe you're going okay how how exactly does that work really when you think about it there's there's four areas that you see up there on the road right the first area between the yellow lines and the white lines is a place we're gonna call wisdom and this is a place if you keep your vehicle between the yellow lines and the white lines that's gonna be a place of peace That's gonna be a place of protection that's gonna be a place of of uh, this is gonna be a place of flourishing right like and so what God wants for us there is a place of wisdom that God for us has for us and we discover that place of wisdom as we read God's word as we listen to God's word as we do even like what we're doing this morning coming and listening to others expound on God's word there's a place of wisdom that God has for you and God isn't out he's not he's not out to get you he's not trying to kill your joy in having this place of wisdom he knows that that's the best place place for you right now the next place that you see where the rumble strips are we're going to call that the place of warning because what I love about rumble strips is and we've all if you've driven for a while at all you've had that experience where maybe you're a little distracted or maybe you're a little tired or for whatever reason like you start veering out of the place of wisdom and now you're in this place and you're you're Your tires hit those rumble strips, and it's like, oh, okay, I got got to wake up here. I got to pay attention here, right? And smart people veer back into the place of wisdom, right? Really, these rumble strips are great because they're a warning. They don't do any damage to your vehicle. It's just like this place of saying, hey, I need to pay really close attention in this place that I'm at right now, and I need to make a course correction and get as quickly as I can back into the place of wisdom, right? This next place where you see the actual guardrails, we're going to place... Call that the place of damage, because you hit you hit the guardrail and you're going to do some damage. But here's the great thing: if the, those guardrails are there to keep you, that that if I hit the guardrail, yeah, I may have to take my car to to a shop or maybe I'm going to have to go to the ER, but I'm not going to have what is finally the last category: the place of death. The place where instead of going to the ER, I'm going to the morgue. And what we've been talking about in a spiritual sense is that in our lives, there are certain areas of our lives where there's clear wisdom and there's clear death. And death doesn't necessarily mean physically. Often death is relational, right? And so at the very beginning of our series, we used alcohol as an example. And everybody in this room, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, maybe you consider yourself agnostic or Hindu or Buddhist or atheist, whatever whatever label you have on you, everybody in this room agrees when it comes to alcohol, there's a place of wisdom. And we would all agree because we've all experienced that there's also a place of death, right? In physical and sexual intimacy, uh, relationships, we understand there's a place of wisdom. We understand there's a place of death. Last week we talked about our words, and we understand our words have the power of wisdom, where we can build and encourage and lift and edify people with words. And everybody, regardless of your spirituality, regardless of your religious affiliation, everybody agrees that with our words, there's also a place of death, right? Why? Because we've experienced it. We've experienced Maybe we've been on the side of speaking it. So today we're going to talk about an area that nobody really comes into church hoping that their pastor will talk about. But we got to talk about it because we need some guardrails. We need some understanding when it comes to this because there's a place of wisdom and there's a place of death. We're going to talk about our finances for a moment. I know, pastor talks about finances. You immediately reach for your wallet to make sure it's still there. Have they grabbed it already? <laughs> now, now here, here's what I want you to understand. And I think again, again, all of us understand and we've experienced this. We've seen this. We have relatives who experience this. When it comes to finances, there is a place of wisdom. And I think we've all experienced that there is a place of death when it comes to finances. Again, maybe not physical death. I don't know that I've ever seen someone physically die, even though people have been led to suicide and other things because of financial situations, gambling debts or, or whatever it would be. But mostly we see this in the death of relationships. Married people, you guys know this for sure, and, and statistics bear this out. Every every couple of years there's a new study that comes out, and consistently in the top either second or third reason for divorce is usually money fights. Isn't that interesting? Second at this point, it's second only to infidelity. Now so so we see, okay, there there's definitely a place of wisdom and there's a place of death. So so, so, what, what does that look like when it comes to our finances? Well, we're gonna look at a passage of scripture in 1 Timothy, chapter six. And I wanna invite you to look this up for yourself, whether you have a digital Bible or, you know, so it's on your phone or on a tablet or you have an old-fashioned paper Bible. Um, we're gonna to turn to 1 Timothy, chapter six. And as you're turning there, I wanna give you a, f- a few moments to get there. Uh, the, the context of this is the Apostle Paul is writing this letter. It's actually gonna be one One of the last letters that the Apostle Paul would write. And he's writing from a prison. He's writing about 25, 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. So, you know, almost 2,000 years ago he's writing this. And he's writing this. Most of his letters were written to churches. They were written to, and by churches, I don't mean they didn't have buildings back then. Just these uh, assembly of believers. This time, Paul, this is a unique letter that he's not writing to a church in Corinth or Galatia or Ephesus. This time he's writing to a person. He's writing to a young man named Timothy. And Paul had an especially close relationship with Timothy. He basically had like a mentor relationship. Timothy would tell you that Paul was definitely his spiritual dad. And so Paul is writing from prison. He's very interested in Timothy and how Timothy is doing especially how Timothy is doing spiritually and he writes this letter and near the end of this letter in chapter 6 we see him talk about something that's really important for Timothy but also for Timothy's friends to understand and so this is where we're going to pick up in verse 6 is everybody there okay I tried to ramble long enough to get you there here we go verse 6 Paul writes yet true godliness with what's the word there He says, yet true godliness with something really important, contentment, is itself great wealth. Let's just pause for a second. Paul is, this is a huge statement that he's making. He is submitting that if, in addition to just our general sense of godliness, if we would add something called contentment, that that in itself would be of great wealth to us. It would be, in other words, this would be the most valuable thing for us. He says, true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, and here's his rationale, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world. And we can't take anything with us when we leave it. And we all understand that. Most of us in this room have been to funerals. You've been in a funeral procession. You've never seen a U-Haul attached to the hearse, right? It just doesn't make sense. People, you know, out of nostalgia, people will throw things in the casket with the person. But we know they're not going to actually be able to use those things. And so Paul's saying, listen, when you die, you don't take any of this with you. All this stuff that you spent all of your life trying to accumulate will eventually be put in a yard sale. And people will walk by the tables going, who would ever buy that? Right? Because we've all been there. Now, we don't think that it's ever going to be true of us. But it's been true of everybody else, so eventually it would be true of us, right? He says, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world. We can't take anything with us when we leave it. Verse 8, so if we have enough food and clothing, let us be, what? Content. Content. And so I would argue, and I think think this is in, in line with what Paul is saying, the place of wisdom is actually the place of contentment. Now, now, how do we describe contentment? What is contentment? We have a definition for you. Contentment is being satisfied with what God has given me. That what I have is enough. What I have is enough. There's an author named Arthur Brooks who, um, I don't think he's a Christian, even though he definitely is in the stream of Judeo-Christian values. Arthur Brooks is a social scientist, uh, wrote a book I'm reading right now, uh, uh, Can't even remember the title, so I guess it's not important. Uh, From strength to strength is the name of the book, and he talks about a definition of contentment. I've really been kind of chewing on this, and I think I think there has something to do with it. He would say contentment, so that's a C equals what I have divided by what I want. Contentment is what I have divided by what I want. And so his argument would be that if we, want to, if we want an increased amount of contentment in our life, we either have to do one of two things. We either have to have more or we have to want less, right? Like th- this is a way of contentment. And he argues, as he, as he continues in the book, that the having more never works, that really what we need to do as a society, as individuals, families, what we need to do is want less. And so so even, even social scientists are telling us that contentment is the way to experience true fulfillment, true fu- fruitfulness. This is what Paul said almost 2,000 years ago. He said, you know, in, in the midst of all of your spirituality, your godliness, man, you need to add contentment. Contentment is where it's at, Right? So if this is a place of wisdom, contentment is a place of wisdom, what is the place of warning? Well, Paul goes on in verse 9, and he says this, and go ahead and buckle your seatbelts right now, because he says, but people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. When I first started really thinking about this passage... This is like the guardrails, isn't it? He says, there, there is such a thing as warning and damage. It, if you don't get this figured out, this is going to lead to a place of death. He says, many are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. He says, verse 10, and you've probably heard this before. For the love of money is the what? The root of all kinds of evil, Right? And some people craving money have wandered from the truth and pierced themselves with many sorrows. So I would say the place of warning, if the place of wisdom is contentment, the place of warning is more. More. I need. I want bigger, better, new, improved, right? And here's our problem, especially in the United States of America, with all the blessings we have, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else in the world. I'm so grateful that I live in this country. But here is our constant struggle and tension, is that we are surrounded, and even when it's subconscious and we don't realize it, there are billions of dollars of marketing at work in our culture to cause us to increasingly say, I have to increase the want bigger, better, better. New, improved. You go to Kroger and get a tube of toothpaste. And you walk down the aisle of toothpaste. Isn't it amazing how much toothpaste there is, right? (laughs) Carrie will ask me to go to get toothpaste, and I get paralyzed because I'm like, what if I make the wrong decision, right? Honestly, most of the time I'm going, which one's the cheapest, right? (laughs) Anybody in that category, right? Here's the intriguing thing about toothpaste. We're talking about toothpaste, Look at the boxes. Next time, maybe you don't believe me, so fact check me at Kroger's or Walmart, wherever you're at the next time you're going to get toothpaste. When you look, look at how many boxes have the word new or improved on the boxes. Right? Why do they do that? Because they know that I, I need, whoa, new, new toothpaste, improved toothpaste. Listen, it ain't new and it ain't improved right maybe they put a little extra dye in there to make the green greeners or or whatever but there's nothing special there's nothing special about it but ooh, new, improved right and even you go to something like an iphone 14 oh i need the iphone 14 i'm going to my son's high school graduation in about an hour and 50 minutes this thing's going to start and I, I, need, I, need, I need that phone so I can take better pictures. I mean, memories, right? That, wait, I need, I have to have it, right? And here's what social scientists will tell us, that within 24 hours to at the most two weeks, I find myself now wanting something else. Like it, And we've all had that experience, right? Like, oh, if I had this new car, then life will be great. Everyone will think I'm the best, right? Oh, man, this would be the greatest, right? No, it won't be. Because a couple weeks later, I'm instantly already going to, I need. I w- See, the place of warning is as soon as I start going, oh, I, I need, I want, bigger, better, new, improved. In fact, would you say these words with me? Because maybe they'll resonate and echo in a couple weeks from now. The, hear the four words, new, improved bigger, better, say it with me, new, improved, bigger, better, one more time, new, improved, bigger, better, that's the place of more, and that's the place of warning, and we, listen, it's just a tension you're going to fight for the rest of your life as long as you're in this culture, because the whole idea is to get me to think I need something bigger, better, new, improved, what I'm wearing is so 2022, Right, like, look at me. I'm so out of fashion. I need, right? And we're laughing because it's true. We're laughing because it's true. So, listen. This isn't just the the thought is okay. Well, this must just be related to spending. But can I tell you, there's also a place of more that we need to watch out for because some of you in this room, you're like, well, this message doesn't have anything to do with me because Ken, I'm not a spender, I'm sanctified. (laughs) I have the Holy Spirit living inside of me and so because I'm not a spender, I'm a saver. And yet here's the thing that I found about people who are saving, because this is my bent, my bent, my proclivity is towards saving, that there is also, I have to watch out, there's a warning for me and there's a warning for everybody else in this room that are savers because if we're not careful, my retirement is never enough. My savings is never enough. I need more security and so I keep putting away more money and more impacts our relationships because the spender and the saver get married to each other, right? Don't raise your hand, just keep looking straight, you don't need to elbow anybody, but we know this is true. And the root, the root of all this is a word that we don't like to hear because we don't suffer from this. Nobody in this room suffers from this, but the root of all this is a word that the Bible uses called greed. Greed is the assumption that it's all for my consumption. Either now or later, it's all for my consumption to spend now, to buy more shoes now, to buy more whatever now, or it's the assumption that it's all for my consumption to to put away, because I'm I'm, I'm smart, I'm sanctified, I'm just going to put away a little more. But both are emotionally driven. Both are driven by fear or desire. Both cause you to live as if there's no God until you get into trouble. And so if you don't hear the rumble strips of more when you desire more, you're going to hit the guardrail. What's over here? What's the damage? The damage over here is consumer debt or hoarding. This is a place of damage. And you say, well, why would you say that's a place of damage? Because I've seen it. 23 years of ministry and talking to people and sitting across the table, what I find, there's huge damage that happens, especially in relationships. But I've even seen, I've seen two who want to get married to each other. Just talked to a guy recently. He's graduating from college with a, with a major that really isn't, I don't even know how he's going to be sustainable. And listen, y'all, he has a hun- he alone, he has $120,000 in student loans with with an unmarketable degree, I mean, it sounds good on paper, but I, I don't know where it's going to go. And so, think about how the the debt, the damage that that debt's going to do. I have another friend who, whose daughter talks to me about, about the, the hoarding that's going on, and the hoarding is causing the family. They don't even want to go to his house. I'm telling you, we've have you seen it? Have you you experienced in your relationships this place of damning? And so when we hit the place of more, new, improved, bigger, better, we go, God, man, lead me back to a place of contentment. So so how do we we get there? How do we get back to the place of contentment? Well, go on to verse 17, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. And Paul's going to say something. This is going to, some of you are going to go, well, pfft. This isn't for me. This is for somebody else in the room, but it's not for me. But look, look at this. In verse, in verse 17, Paul says, he, again, he's, he's writing to Timothy. He says, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Let, let me read that again. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Now, if you're like me, I've read this so many times, I'd be like, you get them, Paul. Right, and that's what a culture tells you. get those rich people, those evil rich people, right? Because that's what culture is saying now about people who, who have resources, who have wealth. But have you ever stopped to think, who is rich? But what is a category for rich? So about 20 years ago, and so some of these figures, you're going to have to adjust for inflation and all that. About 20 years ago, there were some social scientists, and what they did was they went to some different groups of people with average household incomes. They started with people who averaged a household income, uh, average annual household income of $50,000 a year. This was 20 years ago. And they did a couple questions. First question was, would you consider yourself to be rich? And the answer was, No. $50,000, I'm not rich. The second question was, how much would you have to make for you to consider yourself to be rich? Their answer was around, and I'm averaging this for the sake of helping me to remember all the numbers, the average was around $100,000. If we had an average household income of $100,000, dollars you would be rich. Cool. So they go to a group of people who their average household income is $100,000, and they ask the question, would you consider yourself to be rich? And the answer was, No. And so the follow up question was, well, how much would you have to make to consider yourself to be rich? And they said, again, average about $250,000. Cool. So they go to people who have an average household income of $250,000 and they ask them the question, would you consider yourself to be rich? And they said, no. "No. How much would you have to make to consider yourself to be rich? And they said, again, average about $500,000. So they go to people making an average household income of $500,000, and they ask them the question, are you rich? And they said, no. "No." How much would you have to make? I'm I'm not making this up. You can Google this. They went to people with an average household income of a million dollars, and they asked them the question, are you rich? And they said, no. "No." Here's the lesson. I never think I'm rich. I always think there's somebody else out there who makes more money, and they're the ones who are rich. So here's the truth of the matter. So Ohio minimum wage right now, and you know, state by state, everyone talks about a federal minimum wage. But Ohio's minimum wage right now, anybody know what it is? 10 10 You get the prize. I have a pack of M&Ms for you after the service, okay? So she $10.10, even though, can we be honest, most people are actually making much more than that. My, my daughter, who has never worked a job in her life, she's 16 years old, just started out at Turnpike like four weeks ago, and she's making 15 bucks an hour. So if you need a job, there you go. So anyhow... $10.10 an hour, right? So I did the math. Let's say that somehow you're able to work 40 hours. We know most people making minimum wage, their employers don't allow them to, to do 40 hours. Maybe they got two jobs. Somehow the average is 40 hours. And then multiply that by 52. Let's say they're able to week every, work every day, you know. And, and so that total, $10.10 for a year, would be $21,008 in a year. Okay, you can fact check me later. Some of you have your, hand, your arms crossed. You're like, I don't believe a word you're saying. Fact check me later. So if someone is making $21,008 a year, when you think of income earners worldwide now, so let's zoom out. We're no longer just the United States of America. Average earners worldwide, what percent would someone making $21,008 a year, what percent would that put them in Of earners worldwide. I want you just to think about that. Maybe you say the top twenty five percent, maybe you'd say the top twenty percent, top fifteen percent. What would you so turn to the person next to you and just maybe give a number? What do you think someone making twenty one thousand eight dollars a year, what where would that put them in worldwide income earners? What percent would that put them in? So the answer is, because I plugged it in and I just did it like two weeks ago to make sure this answer's fresh. The answer is currently, it would be the top 8.8% of income earners worldwide, someone making $10.10 an hour. Okay, so here's the truth of the matter. Most of us in this room who are income earners are earning more than $10.10 an hour, right? Most of us in this room are in the top at least five percent so do you know what that means I hate to break it to you you're rich if somebody said hallelujah I think (laughs) hallelujah you're rich turn to the person next to you and say I'm rich I'm rich I'm rich So we, we, have, we have been telling our kids this for years. I remember our kids being, I mean, they're elementary school age, and I, we, we'd sit at the di- dining room table, and we wouldn't do this every night. Every once in a while, I'd just say, hey, kids, do you know that we're rich? And my kids, you know, they were at that age back then, they would believe the things that I say. <laughs> now, magically, they're so much smarter, and they know so much more than I do, but that's a whole other sermon. And so, you know, it, back then, they'd be like, we are? They'd be like, yeah, we are so rich. I, they'd be like, we didn't know that. <laughs> we are so you know what? We have a meal. We're sitting down at a table with food in front of us that we cooked in our own house because we're so filthy rich that we have our own house. And we just got water out of a tap that's clean and we can drink it without getting diarrhea and we didn't have to walk two miles to haul the water on our backs. Like we are so rich. And why, what was I trying to do? I wanted my kids to understand we are, we are rich. We're rich. Now here's the thing. You don't need to feel guilty about that. Some of you are like, oh man, now I have another shame thing. You know, like another, I got, that's what the pastor is trying to do. He's trying to shame us. I'm not trying to shame anybody. You shouldn't feel any shame about that. You should feel gratitude and thanksgiving. You should also feel responsibility. Yeah. I don't need to feel guilty. I don't need to feel shame about this whole thing. I just need to go, thank you, God. Yeah. What blessings. Listen, I'm so glad I live in the United States of America for all the dissing of our country and all this stuff. Like, man, thank you, God, that I can, I can find a job and I can earn a wage and I can be in the top 5%. That's awesome. But I, listen, part of it is i do have to feel a sense of responsibility he says teach those who are rich that's me that's you not to be proud and not to trust in their money which is so unreliable and here's the thing tomorrow by the end of the day tomorrow all the wealth that we've accumulated could be gone I'm not a doomsday guy, I'm not a conspiracy theory guy, but I will tell you, we've just, in the last couple months, we've seen enough going on in the financial sector, in our economic issues, and we have this whole debt thing that's about to happen, and Congress isn't, I, I have some things to say about that, but the president isn't necessarily, I mean, there's all these political things going on, right? He's not communicating, all this stuff's going on. Can I just tell you, if you are relying on your money, good luck. Good luck. He goes on, very next thing, you're like, man, this sermon's make me feel so happy. <laughs> this is what he says. So he says, regarding the rich, you and I are rich, he says, their trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. So he says, Timothy, tell those who are rich, that's you and me, tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, Always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. Okay, so much going on there, and I'm running out of time, but one of the things I want you to see their trust should be in God, who what? Richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. God is not a killjoy. He doesn't want you to live in poverty. I don't think that's his desire for you. I think he wants you to enjoy what he's blessed you with. We should, man, again, we should be so thankful. But what is he saying? Paul is saying, use the resources that God has temporarily entrusted to you to do good, to be generous. What we have is temporary. James says that my life is a vapor, it's a spitting in the wind. I'm here today, I'm gone tomorrow. And man, I'm feeling that lately. When I watch my kids are growing like weeds. I'm feeling it. I'm not promised tomorrow. So these resources that God has temporarily stewarded to me that someday are gonna belong to somebody else, man, I don't have to feel guilty about them I just need to feel responsible. So again, here's a question. If you're feeling the rumble strips of more, what do you need to get back into contentment? Or maybe you're over here and you're in this place of consumer debt or hoarding. What do you need to get back to this place of wisdom? Can I tell you this is counterintuitive, but according to what we just read from Paul, the way back to the place of wisdom is something called generosity. 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 That when I feel the rumble strips of more, the course correction that I need to make is generosity. I need to be generous. I need to not have this restrictive, oh, what I have is so limited. I, I, I have to keep it. I have to, I, have to, I have to spend it for myself. I have to hoard it. No, maybe I can get to the place of saying, you know what I have is pretty good. I'm going to want less, and I'm going to be more generous. I'm going to be more generous with my time. I'm going to be more generous with other people. I'm going to be more generous when I see a need around me and I have the ability to meet it. I'm not just going to pray for them. James says this. James says, don't just pray. If you have the ability to meet a need, don't just pray for them. Meet the stinking need, right? Be generous. Be generous. Now, here's the thing. Let's just just bring bring this to an end here. Some of us have to get to a graduation in a few minutes. Here's what I love. As you look at this board, here's what I love. Your Heavenly Father wants what is best for you. Contentment isn't a bad thing. Contentment is what even social scientists who, who aren't even Christians would say, man, this is the place. Yeah, there's gonna be orange barrels. Yeah, there's gonna be roadkill. Yeah, there's gonna be, you know, all the potholes and all that stuff. That, this isn't a place of perfection, but it's a place of peace. I, I wanna be generous, but here's the cool thing about generosity. When I'm generous, you know who I'm modeling? God. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave. He gave. And he didn't just give his leftovers. He didn't just say, oh, yeah, I got a couple $1 bills. Here you go. What is it? He gave his one and only son. The word in the, the, this word, a lot of your translations use the word begotten son, in the Greek, it's a really interesting word, and it's, it's of himself. He, he, he didn't just give like somebody else, he gave himself. Jesus is the Son of God. So, God so loved the world, and He saw our depravity, and He saw our rebellion, and He saw how we live for ourselves, and He saw our greed, and He saw our hoarding, and He saw all, all the selfishness of our lives, all the lack of compassion. He saw that, and He saw how that sin separates us from Himself. He so loved the world. He so wants us to be restored to himself. He so wants us to, to know him and to experience him. He so loved the world that he gave. He was generous. And he gave of his best. He didn't give his leftovers. He gave of himself, his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him. Now, this word believe isn't just like believe, like, yeah, I believe Abraham Lincoln was a president. He was the 16th president of the United States, right? You can fact check that later. I think he was the right. 16th. I believe Abraham Lincoln. No, no. This word "believe" is to put the full weight of your dependency upon that. Whosoever goes, you know what? I'm not going to depend on wealth. I'm not going to depend on my resources. I'm not going to. Those things aren't bad, but the love of those things is bad. I'm not going to put the, my full weight of dependency. Our economy could could collapse tomorrow. I'm going to trust in this God who so loved me that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him will not, what's the word there? Perish. Will not end up in this place of death, of relationships, of relationships, a death of a relationship with God, a death of relationships with other people, the people I love. He says, so I don't want you to perish. I don't want that for you. If you would believe in him, you won't perish, but you will have instead, rather, you will have everlasting life. And that's not just when you die, that begins the moment that you put your trust in him, that he has life for you, abundant, overwhelming, overflowing life for you like right now. That regardless of what you're walking through, that you can have peace that you can have the knowledge that he is with you, even when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, that you know that he is with you. He's present. He loves you. So maybe you're here today, and yeah, we started with a sermon on on, on finances and all that, but here's the most important thing that you could get out of all this is your heavenly father so loves you, so cares for you, so head over heels in love with you. He doesn't want you to perish. He has a way of wisdom for you. He has a path of life for you, a path of peace. And when we are generous, we most reflect our Heavenly Father who's been generous to us. So maybe you're here. In fact, I believe that there's at least an individual in this room that you you have been far from God. Maybe you grew up in Christianity. You've been far from God. and, And there's just been this drawing And you can't even explain it. I would explain it. It's the Holy Spirit drawing you to himself because he loves you so much. And he's drawing you and he's saying, listen, you're in a place of warning. You're in a place of damage, death. And I'm not even talking about finances anymore. I'm just talking about in general in your life. And he is calling you and he's saying, hey, I have a better place for you. But in order to move to this place, you're going to have to respond to my generosity. You're going to have to come to the place of recognizing, I can't. I don't have what it takes. I'm broken. I'm helpless. I'm powerless. God, I am sin stained and sin covered. I absolutely need you. And here's the great thing. When we cry out to him, he says, I'm here. And I have all the grace and forgiveness and love for you. I'm a generous God, and I will forgive you. And I will reconcile you to myself and you can experience the peace that you've been looking for. But it requires surrender. It requires putting the full weight of your faith and your belief in him and saying, God, I trust you with my life. Lead me, forgive me. I'm gonna ask you to stand to your feet. If you're here and you say, Ken, I need Jesus in my life. I yes, ask you just to close your eyes for a moment. Say, Ken, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. Maybe, you've, maybe you grew up in an environment, you followed him, maybe, but, but you find yourself in a place you're just going, I, I have walked away. Jesus is no longer in the throne of my life. He isn't calling the shots of my life. I need Jesus. If that's you, would you just raise your hand so I can pray for you. We're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to call you out. Yeah, I see you right there. I see you, and I see you. I see you right there. I see you, I see you, I see you, I see you back there. After I acknowledge you, you can lower your hand. Anybody else? Anybody else wanna join? I see you right there, bud, yep. Anybody else? You are so loved. The enemy is a liar. He will tell you you're not lovable. He'll tell you that you're worthless. He'll tell you that God could never take you back after what you've done. It's a lie from the pit of hell. You are so loved. You're so loved. If you raised your hand a moment ago, would you join me in just praying this under your breath? Just say, Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus, have mercy on me. I believe you're the son of God. You died on the cross for me. You proved your power and your authority when you were resurrected from the grave. Take my life. I surrender to you. I give. Forgive me of my sin. Empower me to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. So many of you responded. Before we dismiss you, can I ask you to do a couple things? Pastor Aaron mentioned your connection card at the beginning of the service. If you raise your hand, please help me out. Take out that connection card. And there's a place that says, my next step. Would you just check? Maybe you're starting a relationship with Christ, which means you've never done this before. Maybe for you, you're reaffirming this is coming back to that place. Where you, where, you, where you used to follow Jesus? Would you just help me out and check those? In addition, we have prayer partners that are coming up. And uh, as everybody else is leaving you, I, leaving, I challenge you to come and just come to one of our prayer partners. Prayer partners, if you're in the room, would you just even move right now? And uh, as everybody else, is, you just come up and you just say, hey, I, I prayed that prayer. And they want to bless you. They want to pray over you. Um, if you check that on your card and you give us your address, we have something we're going to send you this week. And we just want to help encourage you because the greatest decision that you can make in life is to follow Jesus. By far. Everything, he can help you with all the other stuff, all the damage of financial mistakes, all that stuff. He can help you through all that. It's surrendering your life to him is the starting point of this journey. Amen? Hey, we love you. Don't forget next week, one service at 10 a.m. We love you. Put it on your calendars. We'll see you soon. God bless you guys.